From the unexplained to the mundane, come join us on a journey to the fringe. Hello and welcome to Journey to the Fringe, where we constantly use your favorite term. It's history. Fucking learn it. We are your famous users of that phrase, Taylor and Chelsea. And today, Chelsea, I think you forgot what I said this episode's going to be about. We've done a lot of focus on World War II, the only of the world wars which actually took place. I think we're still in that universe, right? Pretty sure it never changed. Yeah. So we focused on that. What happens after World War II is the Cold War, which I'm sure you know was between two fairly big countries, the US and the USSR on each side. We're going to focus on the fringier part of that, which is everybody who wasn't actually involved on one side or the other. And what happens during the decades following World War II that really leads us to today. Okay. Chelsea, how much do you know about the middle ground in the Cold War? Absolutely zero. Anything to do with this stuff, I am not knowing a whole bunch of stuff. You know about those two, right? (laughs) And then there's wars during the middle that are kind of proxy wars. You got the Korean War starting it off, the Vietnam War, a whole bunch of other little micro fights, the Afghanistan War in the 80s you might not know about, but that's not too big of a worry. No, I know of these things, but not the stuff. Okay. But I'm excited to learn more. And yeah, we're going to start learning more. And this is actually a huge time for independent states to kind of come about. As World War II ends, new countries gain their independence, leaving the colonial era. You got India and Pakistan, pretty much all of Africa, Indonesia, Philippines, Canada, Australia, New Zealand kind of fall into this category, but that was also kind of pre-World War II where they fully gained their independence. They're all coming onto the scene and they really don't know what they're going to be about. They just know that they kind of like this independence thing and they got to figure out what's going on. And now Chelsea, you've heard the term third world country before, right? Yes. Okay. What in your mind does that mean? I know it's not what I think it is, but now I can't remember what it is. To me, it's like someone that, like, they don't have food, they don't have, like, shelter. Poor nation, more or less, right? It's a poor nation, yeah. But I know that's not it, but... No, and you've heard the term first world, right? Yeah. Now, what does that mean? Um, we have things. Okay. Like, when I think first world, I think, like, over here, there's not, like... Is that, is that a proper way to summarize I guess it so. okay yeah but then i think of ourselves as first world and like there's still like i don't know okay i don't know what i'm trying to That's say totally so fine and i was just curious because i bet you don't have an answer for this what's the second world that would be somewhere in between okay which nobody would really truly fit into i don't think well and part of it is that nothing actually really fits the description of it anymore so these terms actually come out of this era of post-world war ii of creating the three worlds so the first world is the u.s and its allies. Second world is the USSR and its allies. And the third world is just supposed to be anybody who's not aligned with them. That's literally how it actually comes from. I did not know that. And I don't know that I've ever heard second world applied to anything. And maybe that's because it is Russia. I've never actually heard it used anywhere. It wouldn't even be considered Russia anymore because it would have been the USSR and its bloc, the Warsaw Pact more or less. So it doesn't even really apply to Russia anymore. So maybe that's why I never heard it ever. Yeah, the term third world and first world's kind of been picked up to kind of mean something different outside of the Cold War ally blocks. However, this is where it 
comes from. And these are this group that comes out of it. All these nations are coming up in South America, Africa, and Asia, getting their independence. After World War II, the first big thing that really happens is the Korean War, which is splitting a country of Korea against its north and south sides. A lot of countries are looking at this, especially in that area, and they're saying, wow, this is really a proxy fight between two big sides, the China-USSR side on one and the US and its allies on the other. Is this going to happen to every one of our countries? So these countries get together and they go to what's called the Bandung meeting. It's in 1955, and it's a meeting of Asian and African states, most of which were just newly independent, which took place on April 18th to 24th, 1955, and Bandung West Java, Indonesia. There were 29 countries that participated, representing a total population of 1.5 billion people, or 54% of the world's population. It includes Indonesia, Burma, India, Ceylon, which is now Sri Lanka, Pakistan, and quite a few other countries are invited here. President of Indonesia, Sukarno, and India's Prime Minister, Nehru, were key organizers, and they have a quest to build a non-aligned movement that would win the support of newly emerging nations out of Asia and Africa. Nehru, the Prime Minister of India, first got the idea at the Asian Relations Conference held in India in March of 1947 on the eve of India's independence. So this is a buildup of groups coming together. And Mao Zedong of China also was a key organizer of this, backed by his influential right man, Premier and Foreign Minister Zhou Enlai. Mao believed that an anti-colonial nationalist and anti-imperialist agenda was underway in Africa and Asia, and he wanted to make sure that China was kind of a leading force behind it. In this effort to represent China as a model, Mao publicly maintained a friendly and conciliatory tone towards newly independent Asian nations nations while simultaneously denouncing Western colonial empires. The Badung Conference reflected what the organizers regarded as a reluctance by Western powers to consult with them on decisions affecting Asia in a setting of Cold War tensions. Their concern over tensions between the People's Republic of China and the United States, their desire to lay firmer foundations for China's peace relations with themselves and the West, and their opposition to colonialism, especially France's neo-colonialism in North Africa and its colonial rule in Algeria. What comes out of the Badung meeting is a 10-point declaration on promotion of world peace and cooperation. So these countries get together and they say, look, we all kind of agree. We want our independence. We want to work together to make sure that we can do it. And these are the principles that we're going to follow. And there's 10 of them. First, the respect of fundamental human rights and for the purposes and principles of the Charter of the United Nations. Second, the respect for the sovereignty and territorial integrity of all nations. Three, recognition of the equality of all races and of the equality of all nations, large and small. Four, the abstention from intervention or interference in the internal affairs of another country. Five, respect for the rights of each nation to defend itself singly or collectively in conformity with the Charter of the United Nations. Six, abstention from the use of arrangements of collective defense to serve any particular interest of the big powers and an abstention by any country from exerting pressures on other countries. Seven, refraining from acts of threats or aggressions or the use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any country. Eight, settlement of all international disputes by peaceful means, such as negotiation, conciliation, arbitration, or judicial settlement, as well as other peaceful means of the party's own choice, in conformity with the charity of the United Nations. Nine, promotion of mutual interests and cooperation. Ten, respect for justice international obligations. So I read those, and they sound pretty darn peaceful, do they not? They sound incredibly peaceful. That's why I just said yeah, There's like half of them are like, hey, by the way, there should not be war. <laughs> China's included in this? Yes. Yes. 
they were one of the members that had a, a person there. And this was all built on the five key peace principles too that Indonesia wants to follow, which are mutual respect for each other's territorial integrity and sovereignty, mutual non-aggression, mutual non-interference in domestic affairs, equality and mutual benefit, and peaceful coexistence. Mm -hmm. That yes. sounds exactly like I would describe China. Well, the world today, of exactly. course, as it uh, moved from yes. here. Basically everything. Yeah. So this Banang meeting happens from it. What gets taken away is an idea to form something called the Non-Aligned Movement, generally shortened to NAM or NAM, just because, you know, we like our shortened abbreviations. Yeah, this comes about in 1961, drawing on the principles agreed to at the Badung Conference. The Non-Aligned Movement was formally established in Belgrade, Yugoslavia, through an initiative of Yugoslav President Joseph Tito and Indian Prime Minister Nehru, Egyptians President Gamal Nasser, Ghanaian President Kwame Nkrumah, and Indonesian President Sukarno. This led to the first conference of heads of states of governments of non-aligned countries, with the purpose of the organization being summarized by Fidel Castro in his Havana declaration of 1979 as to quote ensure the independence sovereignty territorial integrity and security of non-aligned countries in their struggle against imperialism colonialism and neo-colonialism racism and all forms of foreign aggression occupation domination interference or hegemony as well as against great power and block politics end quote quite a few names there that came up a little bit interesting that mm -hmm. the non-aligned movement if you know a bit of history it does include countries that you would generally consider part of the ussr block of countries say cuba and yugoslavia yeah but they at least consider themselves independent enough that they want to be part of the non-alignment movement it ends up being a weird kind of balance of somewhat fall onto one side of the coin, but at the same time, they are independent states who want to assert their independence. Was Cuba involved in the Cold War? Yeah, it was the Missile Crisis. Right, that's what I'm thinking of. Okay. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Mr. Burns famously didn't realize Fidel had won the Cuban Civil War and Batista was still in power. <laughs> if anybody needs a Simpsons reference to be able to get this into their minds. I was just saying the other day, a lot of references I have come from the Simpsons. Yes. That's where I heard it first. <laughs> yes. There's also a really good joke in that episode I didn't get till I was older, where Castro seems pretty happy that in San Francisco they named a district after him, and then he is whispered something, <laughs> yeah. and it turns out that it's the gay district of San Francisco that he is now learning at that point. We could do an episode just on, like... Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, back to the Anyhow, back to this. The countries of the non-aligned movement represent nearly two-thirds of the United Nations members and contain 55% of the world's population. Membership is particularly concentrated in countries considered to be in the developing countries, although non-aligned movements also had a number of developed nations. It really depends on where you draw that line. Like, Mexico is a part of it, Korea is a part of it. They end up getting developed, and a lot of countries end up leaving it just because they are more developed than the actual non-aligned movement is generally. And this group gains the most traction it's ever going to get in the 50s and early 60s when the international policy of non-alignment achieves major successes in decolonization, disarmament, and opposition to racism and opposition to apartheid South Africa. A really big push from them is that apartheid states cannot exist because that is kind of subverting classes of people. Mm. They're also... Can we just remind people listening what apartheid is? Yeah, apartheid is a subjugation of one class of people under another, whether it's based on race, ethnicity, or regional background, color of skin, religion. Right, okay. So if you're black in South Africa in the 90s and back, basically you couldn't go into certain parts of the town. It was okay not to serve these people. They couldn't vote. They're second-class citizens. Yeah, exactly. Just to get everyone. Yeah. <laughs> 
Also, they, at this time, too, also call out Israel for being an apartheid state, which is kind of a very early adoption of that term. Oh, okay. And this entire kind of idea of decolonization, disarmament, and opposition to racism persists throughout the entire Cold War, despite several conflicts between members, because India and Pakistan are both members, they fight constantly. But they kind of both agree they want colonization to just stay out of them fucking with each other. Mm -hmm. And despite the fact that many of the members of these countries do end up developing some relationships with the USSR, China, and US, they're still part of the non-alignment movement overall, which is what I said earlier. One of the quotations that basically from the declaration of this non-alignment movement I quite like is, peace cannot be achieved with separation, but with the aspirations towards collective security in global terms and expansion of freedom, as well as terminating the domination of one country over another, end quote. Yeah, I do like that. And this group meets regularly every three years through this non-alignment summit the chairman rotates to the country organizing the summit. Basically, they'll get together, they'll all agree on a few things they're going to try to push between this summit and the next one, and they'll act as a voting block towards that. Mm -hmm. So I can't help but notice, I don't want to spoil the episode, but I have not heard of one taking place recently. We will get to that, actually. Okay. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. The requirement for membership of the non-aligned movement coincide with the key beliefs of the United Nations. Current requirements are that the candidate country has displayed practices in accordance with the 10 Badung principles of 1955. If you wanted to join this, you actually had to show that you're willing to actually act within that, you know, happy kind of demilitarized peace agreement of those 10 points. Mm -hmm. From this group, Chelsea, comes the G77. Does that mean anything to you? I mean, you take one seven out and I think we have that. G7? Yeah. Now, I think you know what the G7 is, right? I'm pretty sure that I do. Okay, yeah. You can explain it if you would like. <laughs> it's the group of seven at the UN. It is considered the seven most industrially developed countries. Kind of get together and they all agree on what their plan is going to be moving forward. So from that, what do you think the G77 is? The same thing, but 77 countries. That seems like the natural way to go. So I'm going to explain it from here. Either that or just to name someone throughout and they liked it. I had never heard of this before. I offhandedly heard it in a podcast episode and... I tried doing research, couldn't really find anything, and then I finally started to learn more about them. The G77 is the natural continuation of the non-aligned movement. It is a group of 77 countries which was established on June 15, 1964, with a joint declaration of the 77 developing countries issued at the end of the first session of the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development in Geneva, beginning with the first ministerial meeting of the group of 77 in Algeria on October 10th to 25th, 1967, it adopted the Charter of Algiers. It has permanent institution structure gradually developed, which led to chapters all over the world. It has an aims to basically act as a voting block within the UN. The G77 comes from the non-alignment movement. It is basically non-aligned countries throughout the Cold War. And they say there are 77 of us if we can all vote along the same lines. And just so that we understand with the General Assembly, Chelsea, when you're voting in the General Assembly, there's five countries in the UN who have veto power. No matter what they want, if it's unanimous consent throughout, one of these countries can just say, no, we're not doing that. I think we knew that. Yes, we do know we that. Did. But yeah, okay. what the G77 is saying is with 77 countries all voting in unison towards certain directions, we can actually sway the movement of votes just as much as one of those veto powers because nobody can get uh, yeah. majority consent. 
without these 77 countries. Okay, that makes sense. So they came up with their own thing. Yeah, so the Group of 77 is the largest intergovernmental organization of developing countries in the United Nations, which provides the means for the countries of the South to articulate and promote their collective economic interests and enhance their joint negotiating capacity on all major international economic issues within the United Nations system and promote South-South cooperation to, for development. And just so we're on the same page when we're talking about South, it's what's commonly referred to as the North-South divide in that the Southern half of the globe is generally considered where all the poverty is and where all the developing nations are. So when they talk yeah. about the South divide, it's that these countries are developing. They're the third world. They want to stick together. Are we using third world in the sense that you... Unaligned. Yes. Yes, okay. But it more or less means the exact same thing here. And the G77, this was their policy. Any measure which was of interest to most members of the G77 should be supported by the entire group so long as the measure did not militate against the interests of any member of the group. If, on the other hand, there was a conflict of interest, an effort should be made to find a consensus on it with the G77 as a whole. The issue wasn't erased in high-level consultation between G77 and the Secretary General of UNCTAD, and an understanding was reached on the broad approach to be followed to deal with it, more or less based on the suggestions made in paper. So the G77 will get its member groups together right before the UN summit starts annually. And they all basically say, here's what's coming up on the docket. This is how we're going to vote on all of it. This is how we're going to try to negotiate on everything. And we're going to do it as a solid block. And mm -hmm. from this, there's certain areas that the developing world tries to focus on a lot more than like say the G7 does these days. Regarding environmental matters, the G77's position is that the developed countries bear historical responsibility for greenhouse gas emissions, pointing out also the disparity of per capita emissions between the developing and developed countries. The G7 versus G77 I feel like would have completely different Agendas. Yes, they do. Like G77 is focused on the environment, economic development, poverty eradication, the transfer of IP, intellectual property, to the developing world so it can develop faster instead mm -hmm. of having to pay exorbitant fees towards developing it. Yeah. The G77 actually predates the G7 by over a decade. Oh, I. And in fact, the G7 is a response to the G77. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. I was gonna assume that it wasn't, like, didn't happen at the same time. But I yeah. feel like the big guys probably came in for the G7 and just, like, I feel like it would have gone better with the G7. All the developing countries and stuff like that in there probably would have gone better, but then all the big guys... Come well, in. and you got to remember, too, the G7 is just basically the first world. It's the U.S. and its yeah. allies. It was the G8 for a little bit when the USSR broke up and Russia joined it, but it's no longer a part of that. It's back to the G7. And it is just the first world, and I'm using it in the traditional sense of the term, yeah. ally. So it completely leaves out the second world as well. Yeah, yeah. It just ends up to push the agenda of Europe and North America. Yeah. Basically, how this all flows is to keep it just kind of on track. We have that Bandung meeting at the beginning, which leads to the non-aligned movement, which leads to the G77. Yeah. And the G77 being the largest of all of those groups. I'm following. And from there, the G77 wants to push, and this is absolutely going to be a trigger term for anybody in the conspiracy community, but it's the new international economic order. So a new world order is something that comes up constantly in conspiracies. But these guys are literally just saying the economic order is literally just ev there's a couple countries on top that dictate everything to us and we never get anything. So yeah, we need I mean, change. that makes sense in the term anyway. 
Yeah, exactly. And they basically say this is the new international economic order. Their main principles are four. There is sovereign equality of all states with non-interference in their internal affairs, their effective participation in solving world problems, and the right to adopt their own economic and social systems. Two, full sovereignty of each state over its natural resources and other economic activity necessary for development as well as regulation of transnational corporations. Three, just and equitable relations between the price of raw materials and other goods exported by developing countries and the prices of raw materials and other goods exported by the developed countries. And four, strengthening of bilateral multilateral international assistance to promote industrialization in the developing countries through in particular the provisioning of sufficient financial resources and opportunities for transfer of appropriate techniques and technologies and they wanted four reforms with this as well one overhaul of rules of international trade especially concerning raw materials foods and the systems of preference and reciprocity commodity agreements transportation and insurance two reform to international monetary systems and other financing mechanisms to bring them in to line with the developing needs. Three, both financial and technology transfers, incentives, and assistance for industrializations, projects in developing countries. This industrialization is understood as essential for the diversification of economies, which during colonization focused on very restricted range of raw materials. And four, the promotion of cooperation among the countries of the South with a view to greater individual and collective autonomy, broader participation, and enhanced involvement in international trade. This was supposed to be the economic cooperation among development countries, which replaces colonial dependence with new international relationships among developing countries based on trade. Okay. And you know what? In 1974, at least part of this gets passed. They adopt the Declaration for the Establishment of a New International Economic Order in the UN, along with its accompanying program of actions, and formalize the sentiment among nation states. And a few months later, the UN General Assembly adopted the Charter of Economic Rights and Duties of States. However, really pisses off the US. The United States government rejected the NIEO, which is the new International Economic Order, immediately. And conservatives, new conservatives and libertarians criticized the new economic order. They basically think it's like the apocalypse and the communists are winning oh at this God. point. 1974, absolutely terrifying, the NIEO. For example, economist Harry Johnson criticized the NIEO for using central planning and monopolistic powers to extort transfers of income and wealth from the developed countries. Yikes. In his view, commanding prices for raw materials above their natural level usually reduces consumption and thus causes unemployment among producers and price regulations typically gives the extra income to those in control of who is allowed to produce. Newly elected President Ronald Reagan took these calls for market-led foreign policies to the North-South Summit in Cancun in 1981 and basically said to these heads of state that private investment and free markets were the surest path to development, prosperity, and democracy. So the U.S. is having none of the NIEO. Like basically wow. they're like, no, you just got to participate and let us do our thing because we're invested in making everybody better and that's how democracies happen. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So basically, all they've ever done at the UN is the Declaration for the Establishment of the NIEO. Since 1974, there's only been one thing that's been passed, and it was in 2018, and it was a resolution towards a new international economic order. And it just basically keeps it visible in the policy arena. And they basically said, like, well, maybe you can do some stuff with regards to, if you really don't like big conglomerate international corporations, maybe you don't have to do business with them. But, like, that's about it. Oh my god. So yeah, that's kind of the height 
of the G77 is kind of the NIEL period. Right around this time, 1974, is right around when the Vietnam War is ending. Nixon's coming into power and the OPEC oil crisis happens as well, which I think you remember, Chelsea, right? Mm, I don't know. Maybe. Basically, a bunch of oil producing exporting countries, OPEC, all come to an agreement and say we're going to jack up the price of oil or cut the... And sorry, I'm doing a very short version of this. There's a lot more to it than just this, but OPEC countries, there's a bunch of them. The UAE, all the Middle East. I believe Russia was not part of it at this point, but they all say like, let's cut the supply of oil and jack the prices up so that we can all profit hard. Yeah. The U.S. is seeing these pushes around the world for kind of independence from them, and they just decide, like, we're not going to have any of this anymore. G7 comes out. This is where they start to plan as a group how they're going to push for their agenda and where things really start to change. Well, this is becoming sad. And it seemed to start on such a good base. Really did. And I should say, the implementation of the NIEO has faced numerous challenges. One of the main issues is the growing economic inequality, hyperglobalization, which began gaining traction in the 1980s and accelerated after the World Cold War, effectively overturning the Bretton Woods consensus. It's just basically the post-World War II um, international relations and economies. The new order created largely by the Western policymakers was designed to greatly reduce regulation of global markets by removing controls on capital flows and the new trade organizations were intended to open up markets all over the world and make it especially difficult for governments to pursue protectionist policies. And that's what a lot of the policies that they're driving for with the NIEO is to say we need to stand on level ground so the developing world needs some protections. Mm -hmm. And those protections, if anything, somehow disappeared more after they asked for them. <laughs> Funny how that works. The liberal international order, which was the framework of the NIEO, has been crumbling for a long time. The number of liberal democracies has been declining in the world since 2006, reversing a trend that once looked unstoppable. So, you know, falling more into dictatorships than democracies from here on out. Yeah, actually, no. Yep, yep. That would make sense. Basically, from here, we can go into what happens to the G77. As G77 is embedded in the United Nations, its impact and effectiveness and its achievements and failures have been largely dependent on the rise and fall and success and failures of the United Nations. The group functioned extraordinarily effectively and vigorously during the longest part of the golden era of international economic cooperation under the United Nations. That is, 1964 to the late 70s. Its decline started from the beginning of the decline of the United Nations from the early 1980s. There is a consensus that this outcome was brought about by a well-planned and concerted attack on the UN by major developed countries. And there's really no way to restore G77 to its past glory and dynamism without restoring the UN and its charter function, which were snatched away from it, and without restructuring its capabilities, which have been systematically dismantled over the last three decades. Well, as well as the countries that were included in it would no longer fit some of them. You would think, but it was the Global South that was in it, and it's more or less still the Global South. Chelsea, I want you to go to the Wikipedia page for the G77. It has a map of the members in it. But, I mean, the G77 charter, yeah, they're all still there. But they yeah. had, like, what they stood for, right? And, yes. I mean, China was in that. To me, that just does not apply to them anymore. And it's called the G77 plus China. That's the name for it now. It is still around. It has a membership that has 135 countries at this point. And, basically, it has a good summary of what these countries are on its page. It is, first and foremost, every country in the world except... If you're part of the Council of Europe, except for Azerbaijan, because they're part of this, except if you're a member of the Commonwealth of Independent States Free Trade Area, except Tajikistan, and except 
for members of the OECD, the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, except Chile, Colombia, Costa Rica, and Mexico. And I like that they have these general rules and then accepts in them yeah, as well. Yeah, except. There's a lot of accepts. And then there's two microstates that aren't in it. They're called Palau and Tuvalu, mm -hmm. which I actually just heard in the news today. Anyhow, it is massive, but there was an undermining of the power of the UN in the 1980s. I found a quote from Muk Muchkund Dubey. Dubey? I'm not sorry, I'm not sure how to say it. It's an Indian name. He's an Indian diplomat who was part of a negotiator for the G77 in the 1970s and 1980s. And he said this, Unfortunately, by the 1980s, major developed countries had already started their assault to enfeeble the UN and transform its mandates. The process of transferring the UN charter functions in the economic field to the International Monetary Fund, World Bank, and General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade was in full swing. So were the relentless efforts to reduce the staff strengths and put a freeze on the budget of UN organizations. So the US's big plan through working with these countries in the UN is to say, we're actually gonna focus mostly on the IMF and the World Bank because they fund a lot of your development. The US subverts a lot of the world by getting them to take loans from the IMF and then they're not able to pay back those loans. So they make those countries focus on austerity, cutting their funding for a social structure, safety nets, and following policies as the US sees fit. And that's really how they undermine the G77. That and you know, there's a lot of coups in this time that are really funded by the US. There's all through South America. They're all meant to undermine what happened during this time. Wow, I learned a lot in that episode. And I just want to get back to your question. I'm thinking that the NAM isn't around, not a line movement. Well, their next meeting is in January of 2024. Oh, so they're still around. around. Yeah, the group has definitely changed, especially both the G77 and the non-aligned movement had to re kind of focus themselves once the Cold War ended. And ever since, there's not a paradigm of Cold War powers. They've lost a lot of relevancy because of that, because there's mm -hmm. no check and balance on power against the war. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, with the G77 and the non-aligned movement, they did end up getting a lot more support from USSR. It depends on how you want to look at it. You'll see some people just talk about that as propaganda and trying to subvert economies in the world. You could also say that there's an argument, or at least what they're actually trying to do is just say, if people are naturally left to their own choices, they'll naturally end up flowing to communism and let's just help them get to that point. Of course, that's not what most websites say these days, and that might not actually be what it is. The G77 plus China's conference in Cuba just ended right before the UN assembly takes place. It was in Cuba. I believe the Secretary General actually spoke at it. He's got some pretty interesting stuff. It's basically saying that we need to focus on the development of the developing world, stop hoarding its resources from it, and let them have a spot at the table. There's a lot more to it than just that, but it, I thought it was pretty interesting. Do they still meet before the UN? Yeah, just How happened. You never hear about it on the news. You always hear G7. No. but we're a part of the G7 so I guess yeah that's why you would hear about so it. yeah no G77 just met and yeah. most people wouldn't even be able to tell you what that is so at least now you know and you can kind of keep an eye on what's going on they do in fact have a website where they keep all of their stuff on it's just g77.org I believe so now you can walk around asking people if they know what the G77 is and if they say no you can just go hmm. <laughs> walk away you don't want to talk to that yeah. person <laughs> 
But as we say here, it's history. We fucking learned it. So yeah, it's yeah. my new thing I learned for the day. I'm done. Cold War, everybody knows about it, but most people I don't think know about that middle ground that was tried to push throughout it. That was at, in the end subverted, but it was at least attempted and it was going to be the peaceful option, honestly, if you they read what they actually wanted they to push. They gave it a good peaceful shot. Chelsea, anything that you're curious about or want to talk about? I do not think so. Okay. This is not my forte, but I did learn some things. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure most people will. Like, when I was doing research for this, it is slim pickings actually going through it. A lot of the people who will actually talk about the non-line movement are talking about how clearly it's just to show that you need the free market to take over. And, oh, look, it's a right-wing think tank yeah. who's actually writing that article, so you just gotta kind of go and try to find the actual sources. But G77, incredibly rare to actually see anything written about it. Yeah, I would assume as much. Anyhow, I have been Taylor. Here with Chelsea, we are Journey to the Fringe. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. If you have liked what you have listened to, please like, share, subscribe, or follow, depending on what venue you are listening to us through. Also, please, if possible, leave a five-star review, as that really helps us in the algorithms. Should you wish to interact with us, please check us out on your social media of choice. I bet you we are there. And if you really want to communicate with us and give us ideas for new episodes, or tell us that we're wrong and terrible, either way, please send us an email at journeytothefringe at gmail.com. For now, I'll see you in the next episode. Uh